Yo, Chuck, run a power move on him. May I say something to you to give you a true knowledge of yourself and life so that the same glory and success attained by other men who understand themselves may be yours? Man in the full knowledge of himself is a superb and supreme creature of creation. When man becomes possessor of the knowledge of himself, he becomes master of his environment, the captain of his own ship, the director of his own destiny, the accomplisher of his own ends. Uh, peace is the Brooklyn Combine. We've actually now recorded twice, two two times in a row, two weekends in a row simultaneously. We're on a roll. We're gonna, you know, this is a special episode. I not a special episode. Why should I say that? It's not a special episode. We we we're gonna be a little bit more focused um, than normal this uh, episode uh, to celebrate uh, some of the elders that we have been um, acknowledging for the last week or so. And, you know, I, I kinda, I'm not into the, I, I guess I, I, sh I should say black history is world history and is every day. Um, I guess the month of February is just a reminder of that point. Um, I'll, I'll say that. And, and we have some, some elders and, and really courageous people that, that we'd like to discuss this episode. But just to give us a quick little recap from the last episode, we talked about the false narrative. We, we talked about what's going on currently nationwide and New York City-wide concerning you know, this narrative of crime. And, and uh, we talked about uh, the, the machine attempting to um, control the narrative and, and, and affect people who are actually trying to do positive change and necessary change. And one of those people we talked about was Alvin Bragg, newly elected Manhattan district attorney who has not even been in office maybe three weeks yet. Um, <clears throat> I just wanna give a little bit of update to those who aren't in the New York area or if you're in the New York area and you're not familiar or keeping up with it. Alvin Bragg just, um, you would think when the false narrative is out there and it's, it's so blatant and it's so off, you would think that his team would mobilize and clarify that and, and add context, context and address it. Unfortunately, um, he has since backed down and changed some policies that he had um, seemed like he had put a lot of thought into. So when people say words don't matter and, um, you know, we, we shouldn't pay attention or hold people accountable. I just want you to, to think about what's really going on. And I think it's very dangerous when you have individuals who run on a certain policy and unfortunately they can't stand up <clears throat> to what they really believe in. Um, that, 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 that puts us in a very dangerous place. And I just wanted to update people about that. You can look at it in the papers now, you can see that he since rethought some things. And, and it's really, it's, I don't know the word to describe it. So I just wanted, that's been on my mind um, along with some other things, but that's really been on my mind. Anybody wanna add to that? And also <clears throat> I wanna talk about real quick, I think this is for another episode. I think we should talk about this the next episode. 
Um, I'm very curious. Me and Felt have been talking offline about this drill rap era that we're in and what's going on with that narrative. It's a very interesting story that was just put out. Very silly story with no context that was put out about drill rap in association to all the violence that's going on in Brooklyn. And I think that's something we should really talk about. And because I, I think that's actually all related to, to a lot of stuff that we talk about. And, uh, you know, that's that's really it. So we, well, we, we can get, who's I on? Think, no, I think we, we already started. Who's so on? We got, we got brother who's Molly on? X here. I love Who's your name. I'm glad you I'm glad you changed your name, son. Uh, I really I really like that name a lot. Nah, I appreciate the the, the encouragement. You certainly nah, seriously. one of the people helping me get greater clarity on the, the necessity to make that move. I think I'm a ditch Montgomery, man. Oh <laughs> let's go. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's who, who, who we got on though? Cat cat while brothers try to like cat before before we got on. Keith is concentrating, you know. Yeah, but Keith, focus. Doctor Keith is here, but he he's focused right now. I'm I'm I'm, I'm back. I'm back. She's she's out the car. <laughs> <laughs> Uncle Keith got oh, wow. got got a side of getaway driver driving yeah, yeah. around Brooklyn. I I niece Ken is driving him around. I, I like that, but he had to get a little bit focused. I, I feel right. he was he was shit, daddy. Who who else is on? Here? <laughs> Phil is here. Yeah. We got Felton in the building, combine representer. Peace Felt to everybody. Yeah, Felt, Felt yeah. cooking some stuff up in there. Yeah, man. Lord, yeah, Lord man. Felt, his, his lordship. Yeah, yeah. Chopping, chopping these peppers up like, like you know, a real uh, HGTV chef. No, I like that. <laughs> like a real you know what chef. I also, you say you know, what I, also wanted to, I also wanted us to talk about this uh, Brian Flores oh. NFL lawsuit because oh, yeah. I think that there was a lot of there was a lot of like furor, mm -hmm. but not a lot of information mm -hmm. around around our um, around our position on that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I think we should. Uh, I would love you. You want we want to um, end with, with talking about the Flores uh, suit a, a little bit, or how we want to do it? I got a lot of thoughts about it. As yeah. Well. I, I, However, y'all want to do it. Right. I'm, with. I'm, I'm with. I'm with whatever. If it, you know, I'm with whatever. But, Funk, you want to take us into the, the first, the first elder that, that we're honoring here? Okay, guys. So we're honoring um, our first elder, which is Fannie Lou Hamer. Sure. Oh, she, wow. was, she was. <laughs> she was official. Um, oh, I'm gonna just, for, for those of you not on, on Instagram, we're just going to start with, 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 you know, the, the brief synopsis in 1964, Fannie Lou Hamer helped organize freedom summer an African-American voter registration movement in her home state of Mississippi. She joined the Mississippi freedom democratic party in 1965 and worked with other activists to oppose the state's all white delegation. When she saw the power of the white landowners battling black people by denying them food, voting rights, land, and financial opportunities, she created a solution. Freedom Farm Cooperative, a community-based rural and economic development project. Aside from suffering physical disabilities due to childhood polio, being the victim of police brutality, assaults, extortion, death threats, 
and suffering the horrors of the forced hysterectomy, Hamer risked her own well-being to improve the conditions of blacks in America. If I fall, I'll fall five feet, four inches forward in the fight for freedom. That's a quote from Fannie Lou Hamer. She's a, she was a, a legend and a, um, we honor her. Well, well, you know, I hope you would, you know, I mean, listen, I would hope people, there's a ton of information out there about Fannie Lou Hamer um, outside of Instagram. There's a lot of books on her. There's a lot of video footage on her, uh, news footage. Um, for me personally, I was introduced to her at a young age and I was struck by her, her resolve. Um, she, it was, there was no, you know, we, we live in a day and age where it seems like people are propped up there. Um, they have to, they have to take media lessons. They, they need um, a team behind them. I, I got the sense that Fannie Lou Hamer, what she was telling us, she was living it. And there's, there's, I remember a couple of years ago, I don't know if y'all remember, remember we were, we were passing around this video of it was in the 60s. And um, what struck me about Fannie was that I can imagine that in this society, we forget, she was a reminder to me that there are, the, the strength of black women in this society, in Western culture, we don't really talk about it. We talk about the things that we think are, you know, you know, black girl magic this, black girl magic that, and not to take away from anyone, but Fannie Lou Hamer, she got to the core of the hypocrisy of what this was about. And she was unadulterated. Um, she was truthful. She was honest. She spoke in her own language. Um, she wasn't afraid. She put her, herself at risk and she was, she was sterilized. Oh yeah. She was sterilized. They, they, she was, she was sterilized. They, they used to, they would exercise those practices so much that they called it a, um, a Missis, a Mississippi appendectomy. Oh, yeah. 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 This is how, how common it was for black women to go into the hospital for a general procedure and to come home without the capacity to reproduce. And it was, it was utterly normalized, but go ahead. Sir. She had no hashtag. She had no 24 hour microphone and she organized um, around voting, around human rights as it related to black people and black people in the rural South. And she got the attention of the world. She showed up at one of those conventions was it the, De the Democratic Convention? Indeed, um, <laughs> right, right in Atlantic City, right here in Jersey. She showed up like ready to speak her truth. And um, she was someone to me who we don't know enough about. Um, and, I, and this is not to knock anyone. Raising daughters is terribly difficult. Um, ra raising young black women in this society is, is really difficult. Um, and it, it really bothers me sometimes when you look at the education of our, of our young women, how the Fannie Lou Hamers, the Ida B. Wells, and so many uh, countless others really were hidden from the history. 
Um, and that's that that's responsibility falls on us. But Fannie Lou, in many ways, it showed it also she reminds me of how devious America is. I, I just say that they America has not done a good job of representing that woman and that elder and what she's done and what she's represented. And I think um you know, we owe her that. I think all of our communities, we really owe it to ourselves and our children to introduce. And, and listen, these were complicated, complex people. They, they, they had, they lived, many of them lived uh, terribly difficult lives. Um, and many of them died in pain uh, from the struggle. Um, Absolutely. And, and um, that, that's, that to me is, is, uh, her strength and her courage she showed that you didn't have to be highly educated to be smart um, mm -hmm. you didn't have to be trained uh by by a system to be courageous uh she just had so so many good attributes about her nice. and, and she was ready to, she was ready to go like we we were building we were building off off the off the, the thread earlier and we were talking about this story and one of the docs that I saw, and it was this uh, friend of hers, Mac, and he talks about what this before they were friends when, when he came to, to see her and invited her to come on out and join the movement. He walked in, said, you know, I'm looking for Miss Fannie Lou Hamer. And she got up, you know, short sister, like she said, five foot four. And she got up, got her bag and left. And from then on, she continued with the movement. Like she actually simply, imagine, straight knocking on the door. Yo, brother, let's go. It's this time, time to make a move. You beating me for the first time, but you know what I'm about and you know what the cause is. You know what the agenda is and you straight get up and go. And, and that kind of spirit, yeah, you pay a price. You pay a sit. And really think about it. She was 40. She was 44 at the time. She, she, she so was, for yeah. all of those who, for all of those who get too comfortable with that lazy disposition today where people will and I'm not, I'm not calling any single individual out, but it, it can be perceived as a lazy disposition when you're hoping the young people got it. This next generation, they gonna do this, they gonna do that. But what about you? What are you gonna do? That sister was 44. All she knew was that same plantation that she's now sharecropping on, that her people had been on forever. That was her world, the totality of her reality. No, she, she got suffered. introduced to the world, she hit the ground running. Yeah, she she suffered physical abuse. You know, they damaged her eyes, her legs, her kidneys. They they abused her. You know, in the jails. Mm -hmm. You know, some black people took part. In it. And, some Negroes. Yeah, and and so when you when you also, you know, we we sometimes miss the connection between the past and the present. What's going now? What's going on now? Currently, what's going on now? And the two major parties are at you know what seems to be a constant bickering and war. And one of those major parties is doing everything that they can to affect voting. Um, Fannie was into voting rights. Like what she was doing back then was, was um, democratic. And we see how since, because people didn't quite understand what she was doing, what she had been through the pain, I think that torch being carried has, has kind of faltered a bit. But we need people to understand what she sacrificed her life towards, her physical health, her mental health, her emotional health, because what she was about and what she was trying to address, the hypocrisy of democracy, the, you know, a lot, of, a lot of us like to think this is a democracy, but it's a democracy informed by colonialism. Um, this was a sharecropper. 
um, we still have issues today concerning voting. And from this social political um, environment that we're in, the work that she did, we need to go back and look at that. Because now we, oh, well, we, well, we're looking at what our concept of, 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 of civil rights activists now is, is basically how much you can raise money. And as we see now, it's filled with uh, conversation and things that are actually not affecting the bottom line. Um, Yo, look at how she impacted that bottom line. Yeah. Son, the, the, the Freedom Farm Cooperative, they had a Head Start program there. They had all sorts of education going on there. They had a, 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 lot of, a lot of folks up here might not like it, you know, some of the vegetarians and what have you. But guess what? They had a pig program up there. The folks got to eat. They coming out the South. They were mm -hmm. feeding the people. It was very practical. It was very hands-on. And you're 100% right. That mindset of, I'm going to get out here and get it done practically. There's no fanfare. There's no celebration of it. But those who were being celebrated, she had her enemies, and they weren't always uh, the luminary. Roy Wilkins called her mm -hmm. flat out. She, she was ignorant. Said, yeah. said you're, you're ignorant. What do you tell her? And, and you don't you don't understand politics. This is mm -hmm. the people. <laughs> this you're saying this to the, this not somebody not yet anyway running for office or what have you and she did run and I'm glad she did and she deserved the support that she got but again he was jealous and he got comfortable in that limelight he got comfortable being that that special negro and so in many ways he wasn't terribly different than those negroes that were beating her when she was locked up you know he wasn't terribly different he was doing the best he could to abuse her psychologically fortunately he wasn't successful and that sister took her behind and made the ultimate pilgrimage, left that plantation and went to the continent. And, I mean, and, uh, incredible life. And and to think about where she came from, you know, she came from out of Mississippi, <laughs> born in 1917 <laughs> in Mississippi, sharecropping. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know if you know the, the political landscape of, most people don't know, uh, the most people may or may not know the political landscape of Mississippi today. Mississippi today, I think, and I may be wrong, I'm not sure, I think Mississippi has one of the largest Black constituency, but they don't hold many major offices there. Um, that is interesting um, for, for that to be uh, reality in Mississippi and to think she was coming from a place that had Probably at the time that she was coming out, born in 1917, um, you know how many lynchings, you know how oh, many yeah, death threats, yeah. you know. Yeah. So, and it was know. no matter of fact, she they they came by with her husband, and again, shout beautiful black relationships. They came and shot. He he felt like you know what you're gonna need to get up out of here. This is I'm not feeling too good about the kind of pressure and attention that, that that's coming upon you right now. And it was a good thing because that following day, that either that following day or that following evening, they came in and they shot that house off. They mm -hmm. shot yeah, that she house lost, I think she know? lost her home, her job and her home after trying to register people to vote. And think about yeah. what we, you know, when we look at the Democratic Party as it exists today, um, it was people like Fannie Lou Hamer who were responsible for that. Absolutely. So... I don't know if, right. any, if any other brothers want to want to build on. Let's take a break, um, brother Kenneth. Let's see, what, that, man. let's see what you got. Why you not my brother? Yeah, you know what, son. <laughs> take your hat off. Take your hat off on the, on this you, call. Cause you you take your hat me. off on the Zoom, man. 
Straight up. Yeah, you I'm going to knock your hat off your head. I'm going to knock, nah, knock your kufi off, your off when I see you. I'm going to knock your kufi off. Take off, that, Wil- <laughs> take off that hat, Wilbur. I'm going to take a break, man. Where, where are we going to? Are we going to music? Yo, I, I, I want, I, you know. <laughs> you know felt, felt, you know. Felt got his Beanie Siegel one song on 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 a podcast last well, week. I, I kind of want to stay. Was away was, was that a good selection, Big Felt? I, I was gonna tap. I didn't, that wasn't my favorite. It wasn't Beanie my favorite, but it was, I was Desert Eagle. Desert Eagle. He got yeah, busy. Felt called um Doomites. Whatever. Right, Doomites. I'm I'm going jazz, man. I'm going real mellow, man. I'm going yeah, not yeah. my. That's, that's, I'm going that's not right my state. That's the right way to go. That's a good one. Not my state vibe. Not my state vibe. Nah, I'm a state. You know what I'm saying? I'm a state. Oh, 
right, so we're back. You know, it's really difficult, I want to say, also to really discuss people who led such um, challenging and prolific lives who really we stand on the shoulders of. It's so much that can be said about all of these individuals, and it really doesn't give them due justice to talk in, in a couple of minutes. Like, you know, the, you can talk for days. There's, there's information out there. There's things that they've done. I think hopefully what we're trying to impress upon us as a community is that we have to build a curriculum. Um, there has to be a, a paradigm in place to educate in the information. You know, we, we have to have that information where these young people are aware. And I think that's where we suffer the most. When we don't have our own educational and cultural default system, that's when history gets lost. Um, it's something you said last week, Mally, which is, you know, we've been written out of history already. And it's like we're writing our own selves out of it. So it's like we got to figure out some things that, that, can, that can continue where the conversation about the Fannie Lou's, like, listen, we, we only know her, but there probably was 10 to 15 other people who, you, who never got that attention. Who she was from getting- that, Yeah, from that, from that, from probably an adjacent plantation, right, yeah. right in the same area, because yeah. these individuals, and, yep, yep, indeed. So Phil- And that's why I don't like the idea of, that's why I don't, I don't co-sign the whole idea, like, trying to rewrite black history as this black future thing. Mm -hmm. There's so much history that we don't know. And then we find out randomly every day now, like bad example is like, they put out that movie Hidden Fish mm -hmm. being in class hearing about these women that helped create the math that people face. Never had it in school ever. So I feel like I like the idea of quickly going back, but like, you know, we don't have to seek the same stories that we already know. It's good to like, go through the cracks and the crevices and find and share those others. I agree. I agree. Absolutely. Yeah, Absolutely. Well said. All right. So we, we're moving along. And again, this exercise is more so to just share and create an audible account from the combine of the people we honor. So yeah. we're, we're moving on to um, Chairman Fred. And, and speak with a, uh, read with a little bit more fluidity, Phil. You sound like the kid, you know, who had a little bit of difficulty reading when he got called on in class. I, I was just listening. I want to support It, it was challenging because my phone kept cutting off, but it's cool. Yeah, Frederick it's Allen Hampton Sr., Deputy <laughs> Chairman of the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense, began a life of service in suburban Chicago in the late 1940s. As a child, he hosted neighborhood breakfast programs to help feed his community and joined the NAACP soon into his young adulthood. A natural leader and brilliant orator, unlike Kenneth, he organized local youth dedicated to improving the impoverished socioeconomic conditions in his community while at the NAACP. Soon thereafter, Chairman Fred joined the BPP where he emphasized health, nutrition, self-defense from police, and government brutality and anti-racist multicultural alliances amongst the local gangs and other like-minded community organizations. The Rainbow Coalition was one of the many fruits of his labor. Chairman Fred, at just 21 years old, contributed a lifetime's worth of sacrifice in the struggle of the marginalized and disenfranchised. We're going to fight racism, not with racism, but we're going to fight with solidarity. 
We say we're not going to fight capitalism with black capitalism, but we're going to fight with socialism. Those are the words of Deputy Chairman Fred Hampton. Please, I would love to really quickly to, to yo, we'll definitely salute that man. To, to felt point, not only do we want to be sure to illuminate some of the individuals and various characters that are not as celebrated, but even for those who are celebrated, some aspects of their character and their depths and dimension that people might not be as aware of. We know, we know Fred Hampton was young. We know that. We know he was, you know, he, he was astounding at organizing. We know he was incredible at bringing people together. But his capacity to really create structures that would outlast him, yo, an incredible Marxist-Leninist thinker, an incredible Marxist-Leninist actor. When we look at a lot of the work that he was doing with Rainbow Coalition, so much of that really helped to put into context those, those who, who study socialism today or study communism today, and you look at how can anarchy work? How can it make sense within these paradigms? Here was a, a person, I, to me, I'm not even concerned with him being young because he started studying so, so early that he had about as much tenure as those who were you know, perhaps decades older than him. And so he brought a, a lot of knowledge to bear in terms of social organization and how can anarchy work? So for, for those of us today, you, you might look at you know, whoever, you might study Chomsky, you might study a Zen, you might study uh, whoever, whoever in the world you study. So much of these individuals, they may not be directly, but indirectly, many of them, and probably directly, have been looking at the work that this young man was not only theorizing in, he was actually putting into practice because many of these other individuals who were willing to consider a different type of society, a society that wasn't rooted in capitalism, he's 100% right. When he talks about, we're not gonna fight with black capitalism, this is an informed individual. He's understanding that the problem with the concept of black capitalism is you the primitive, you the source of primitive accumulation. You, you can't, there's, there is no such thing. This is nonsensical, this notion of black capitalism. So even today, when people get up in arms, they want to celebrate black Wall Street. That's fine, but don't go crazy over Black Wall Street if you got some imagined version of it, of it being some Black capitalist utopia. No, that's not what was going on. You want to look at this concept of class solidarity, and this simply happened to emerge from that, this, this mode of exchange, like Dr. Africa talks about all the time, bringing the best of your goods and the best of yourself to the market when it's time to exchange. These were some of the ideas that were underpinning Fred Hampton's psychology he had a remarkable ability to distill it down and make it palatable for the people. But there was a, a astounding breadth of understanding of social structures, class dynamics, and all of that was being brought to bear. This brother was a true scholar, a, a freaking, a you wonderful know, thinker and an incredible human being. You know, what, what, what struck me so much about, about um, the chairman is that how, how much clarity he had. He had, he had a clarity that that people around him um, didn't necessarily understand, and I saw it highlighted. And there was an interview. There was a there was a like a group talk, group session, and some some you know he had like he had some, some Asian comrades and some white comrades, and one of the white cats was like, "Yo, like you know, we need to we need to figure out how to like redistribute wealth." And we need to get people the money. We need to get people money. 
And he said, well, he said, well, if you give people money without education, then you only create in neo-colonialism like what was happening in Haiti. Mm -hmm. He said, so the idea of just giving people money doesn't really solve our problem. It only actually re it only actually reinforces the problem. Mm -hmm. And so when I think about when, when I when I think about that, it reminds me of so much of our struggles today are because we don't have that type of clarity and leadership. And what I mean by that is if we had clarity and leadership, then the idea of, for example, we talked a little bit offline about this Brian Flores, Brian Flores case, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, the issue that, that some of us are having with these types of cases is that um, it, it looks like and it appears like folks are, and I don't believe this is the case with Brian Flores. I actually, I actually dig Brian Flores. But what I, the problem is, I think that it looks like folks are um, fighting a value system with a value system that only replicates the value system that they're protesting. And so the problem there is, when I look at the Brian Flores case, I think he's got sincere and real distinct legal issues. He's got, pro he's got real distinct issues with the Miami Dolphins, right? But when I look at his legal team, right, you can't tell me, one, these are not, you can't tell me that these are the best civil rights lawyers that you could find. Because, I mean, I could, I could probably name 30, right, off top, right, in firms throughout the city that would have taken this case and that would have actually litigated the issues without, you know, without some salacious text. And, and and red herring issues that aren't really the issue. Um, yeah. Now I was gonna say you you hitting it you hit it you and Mally both to me are hitting on the head why Fred Hampton was so powerful yeah. of a human being. Um, right. First, you can't you can't um, you cannot talk about his age in the sense that he died at twenty one years of age. He was executed by the Chicago Police Department with the help of the FBI. That was at 21. He had a understanding of the dynamics of Western culture of power that is rare for individuals, period. Um, like he understood the dynamics of power in American society in a way that he had his own lane with it, just like Malcolm had his own lane with understanding what was going on. Fred, because of his youth, he had a he had a fearlessness about the relationships that he needed to forge to perhaps get at the system that needs to be destroyed. And I think what was difficult when you look back now and you look at, he was 21 years old. You realize that it's almost like with um, Patrice, Lumumba in a sense too, in that their brain and their understanding of what needed to happen was so far ahead of another component, which is we needed something in place to catch this change. Um, 
Fred, he, he was a supernova intellectually, like from a power mm-hmm. dynamic. And what was and what was crazy is when you hear him talk, he he he's one of my favorite people to listen to. Like his way with words and his emotion, um, his his understanding of the common man situation. But what it goes back to what you said, Uncle Keith, Brian Flores has no ideology. His ideology is, yo, I deserve something, man. Like, listen, at the end of the day, he's not the most deserved uh, black NFL guy. There's, there's been tons of guys who they, they never got the coach. The, the Eric guy, I forget his name, but Henemy. Eric, 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 the enemy. The yeah. enemy, whatever. But what, what shows you he has no ideology is that he goes and get the popular people to, certain, to a certain degree. And he doesn't even see that you're promoting the same thing that you're trying to fight. I don't know him personally. I know people who know him. So it showed like, that's one of the things that really gets me angry when I think about Chairman Chairman Fred is that when we lost, could you imagine our society now, we talking about all these kids that the violence now that everybody's talking about. Could you imagine if we had a generation of that, of what Malcolm and Fred and Elaine Browns and Catherine Cleveland, could you imagine if we had a generation of that? Um, Our social, political, economic position in this society would be a lot different. Our understanding of the dynamics of power would be a lot different. How we would exchange with one another would be a lot yes, right. different. And that first, yes, first and that, all, that's the that's the linchpin. Yeah. That's the linchpin that that interaction because most of these individuals that we're talking about here, we we're going to cover throughout the rest of the month, of course, and always we building on them. There was so much interaction and engagement because at that moment it wasn't yet solidified exactly how to convince so many of these black people across the board that there's a special place if they truly separate themselves that was more happening here and there it wasn't totally resolved in the manner that it is today and he was and he was 21 he had it first of all we don't we don't even we don't we we don't if we have if 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 fred hampton is not killed and continues on that path malcolm x is here some these 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 are the leading ideologies in black liberation right if these are the leading uh, ideologies in Black liberation, then there's not even a space where a Sean King and DeRay could be arguing because they don't exist. Yes. No, they wouldn't exist. That's what I mean. Like uh, Al Sharpton wouldn't exist. To a, bit, to a large degree, Jesse Jackson's. Obama wouldn't exist. Those guys are only marketable because of there's something about them that America can accept and bring on in. You, you know why they wouldn't uh-huh. exist? Because no one would care about a first black president of America. Absolutely. If America, if America is still doing what America does. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Exactly. And that's and that's and that's and that's to 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 both to the points that both of y'all are making about the importance and power of ideology. Because here's the thing, even if ideologically you're in an ill place, some of these elders that we end up celebrating, well, of course, knowledge should expand, understanding should grow. Today, many of them. I personally don't agree with their ideology. However, because there's something there, it's like mathematics or science or anything else. You can you can have a 
profound step to say, I understand why that's problematic. Now let me take the next step. When you're so wishy-washy that you have no ideology, all you're doing is performing for the camera. You have no position. No, you're a politician. No yeah, no, nah, it's, you it's have so, no position. It's a, you have a position. It's a self-interested position. You know, it's a, it's it's based on self-preservation and interest to a certain degree. But you know, to 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 really appreciate the enemy, like we don't like to say it because you know, you know, we're at war. Like America waged a war with us. When you kill the, the problem is we're at war. We're at war with an ideology that we are embracing. Yes, and that that is that is the problem. So 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 when I think about Sham and Fred, he understood that his his war was not against individuals. It was a it was it was it was with ideas, and so he was always that was his clarity. That was his clarity. So when I think, so just bringing it back again, when I think about the, the Flores thing, the Flores, that the, the crux of that case, what really matters in that case is a whistleblower complaint against Miami for investing in his failure as a black coach, right? Now, what's salacious, what makes it, you know, what, what gives it all of the press that would provide a reward is to say that, it's a race-based claim and make it a class action and do all these other things that actually enrich and help the law firms that are filing the claim and actually don't necessarily help him. And he'll probably never work in the NFL again. Not that I think that that's even really a thing, right? But when I think about, I think, when I think about that path, right, that path doesn't exist if you have black leadership in place that says, Hey brother, let me let me let me let me put you on the game. What you what you actually what you're actually trying to do, what you what you're actually trying to do is you're trying to, you know, and 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 I think that that is that's that's severely missing. And so I miss I miss Fred Hampton, even though I never got to meet him. I miss him. Um I miss him in moments like this where I'm like, man, like we need clarity. And we're yeah, not but, getting clarity. Yeah, but and, and you know we 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 we're so far gone though. Like what I meant by like you know we were in a war, and that war was to kill and suppress black consciousness, black resistance, black intellectualism. And when you kill that, then a guy could just jump up and close his eyes and pick the whitest white firm of white firms. He doesn't even under or the the black the black politician. You know, only a lot of these black politicians we see people raving about, they're they're puppeteered by all whiteness and white people. We know that personally. Um, but when when you've effectively in a war killed the idea of black intellectualism, then this is a sign of you winning when someone like a Brian Flores won't even understand the historical nature of what he's doing to make it even better by saying, you know what, maybe we shouldn't file on the first day of Black History Month. <laughs> like, maybe that's not the thing. Maybe we should really get the case together. But when yeah. you're looking in and when you're when your eyes, when you're not educated to history, you won't you you won't choose that option. Um, and and you know, listen. Black, there's a, there's a great history of black 
uh, intelligent, militant lawyers in this society, they've all been, they've all, for the most part, been done away with. They've been ostracized, right. disbarred. Um, so it, it's a weird space, but Chairman, you know, Chairman Fred makes me angry because that brother was, that young brother was 21 years old. He was murdered. Yo. He was murdered, like Yo, by the government, by murdered. the state. Yes, by the exactly. They killed by, him. By the state. And by so, state. and that's, that's such an important point because so often the mental model that some will hold is that there are these mean racist people and you know, they wear big, tall, white mm -hmm. outfits. They, and they go out and they, yeah, they got hoods and they, they yeah. talking like this and hey boy, yeah. the reality is that is not, that's no. not what you battling no, against. Those, those, like Uncle Keith made that clear. <laughs> we all made that clear. This is the government, Yo, the, the Washington, greatest military machine on this planet. That's no, the, who's against you. The you Washington black. suits killed Chairman Fred. The suits, yes. the, the educated, the Harvard educated guys, guys in the vein of the Allen, the Dulles brothers, those types yes. of people, Hoover, like yes. the educated yes. people killed Chicago them. boys, all of yes. them. Cats. All, you you, know, so. And you know who Fred, I'm gonna tell you who the chairman grew up to become. We can we can look, we can look years later at a at a at another young brother, not not as young as chairman, but but Thomas and Cara, over yeah. 3,000 miles away. Yep. Uh, Burkina Faso, I mean, very similar, ideologically, very sharp, and, and in a position and willing to do the work, willing to do the work, not That's, looking for fans, not looking they, for fame and fans. Listen, America, real listen, if we're going to be honest about war and thinking in that mindset, they had to kill Fred Hampton and Malcolm. They had oh, to. Yeah, yeah, Because yeah. if you yeah, get a yeah. generation of that, you don't have what we're dealing with right now. Like that's the real, I don't think people really appreciate that. You, we would have to be thinking about and doing something else and living a different type of way. We would not have, we would have our problems, but the world wouldn't know what our problems was. We wouldn't be on that's the world right. stage with our problems. And right, because you, you'd have a nation within a nation. You'd have yes, a nation within a nation. nation. Within a nation. And, and that's why they had to kill that young man, so. So salute Chairman Fred. Salute that man. Yeah, salute and his son. Um, I think his. Oh son, yes, you know, Fred. I, yeah, Fred Hampton Jr. So, I mean, Indeed. Are we going on to 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 someone else? Yeah, we're gonna take a break. You know, take. Okay. A you know, break. we should play. We should play and in honor of this young brother who was just killed in Minnesota. We should play. No, not. Um, we want to do Jill a point for one of our unfavorite people, um, who's now the head of the. Uh, Nixon campaign. He was formerly the attorney general named John Mitchell. Um, Nixon's campaign seems to be out, you know, getting off on a rather hip foot after his trip to China in the name of peace uh, while they were killing people right across the street, so to speak, in uh, North and South Vietnam. But um, No Knock, the law in particular, was allegedly um, <laughs> legislated for black people rather than, you know, for their destruction. And it means simply that authorities and members of uh, the police force no longer have to knock on your door before entering. They can now knock your door down. So no knock. You explained it to me, I must admit, but just for the record, you were talking shit. Long rap about no knock being legislated for the people you've always hated in this hellhole that you, we, call home. The man will say to keep that man from beating his wife 
No knock, the man will say, to protect people from themselves. No knocking, head rocking, enter shocking, shooting, cussing, killing, crying, lying, and being white. No knock. No knock on my brother Fred Hampton, bullet holes all over the place. No knock on my brother Michael Harrison, jammed a shotgun against his skull. For my protection, who's gonna protect me from you? The likes of you, the nerve of you, to talk that shit face to face, your tomato face, deadpan, your deadpan, deadening another freedom plan. No knocking, head rocking, enter shocking, shooting, cussing, killing, crying, lying, and being white. But if you're wise, no knocker, you'll tell your no knocking lackeys, ha, no knock on my brother's heads, no knock on my sister's heads, no knock on my brother's heads, no knock on my sister's heads, and double lock your door, because soon someone may be no knocking, ha, ha, for you, no knock, to be slipped into John Mitchell's suggestion box. So we're back, uh, we got the, um, Got the reader and the crew, Big Phil, you know what I'm saying? Get to it, son, actually. A little bit more fluidity this time, a little bit more passion. You know, emphasize your words, use your voice as an instrument, you know, all right? Good, you know what I'm saying? Pull Poet in, laureate, Gwendolyn Brooks was a regular contributing writer to the Chicago Defender by the time she graduated high school in the 1930s. As a teenager, she began chronicling the Black experience with such poetic prose that she drew the attention and encouragement for her literary work from James Weldon Johnson, Richard Wright, and Langston Hughes. She was a master of language, creating a style that blended traditional ballads, sonnets, and blues rhythms that asserted Black people's humanity in America. In 1950, Brooks was the first Black person to win the Pulitzer Prize for Poetry. A prominent poet, author, and teacher, Brooks had an extraordinary literary career, created works that celebrated ordinary people in her community, highlighting the everyday struggles of Black life. She was named Poet Laureate for Illinois in 1968, the first Black woman appointed as a consultant in poetry to the Library of Congress in 1985, and the first Black woman inducted into the American Academy of Arts and Letters. On any given day, regardless of where you find yourself in the struggle, Brooks reminds us that even if you are not ready for day, hmm. it cannot always be always night. Be night. I love that. Yo, I, whew, I love it too much. Yo, no, I, so I, shout I'm to my Gwendolyn mother. Shout, shout to my mother, our, our Linda McIntosh. You know, some some people know is it, Mama Sophistifunk. Young young Mally Band became very passionate about poetry at an early age. You know, thanks to my mother, so I'm introduced to a lot of great writers. But yo, right now there's a there's a photo of Gwendolyn Brooks on my wall. So I'm a I'm an absolute fan. I, I would love to read a short piece that I know is probably a go-to piece for plenty of people. It's not my favorite piece, but it's appropriate since since Kitty playing so much jazz here. It's it's a piece called The Pool Players Seven at the Golden Shovel. Some people think it's called the Pool Players. It's called the Pool Players Seven at the Golden Shovel. And so the piece goes. We real cool, we left school, we lurk late, we strike straight. We sing sin, we thin gin, we jazz June, we die soon. <laughs> that's, that's real, that's about as real as it get. You know what's yeah, crazy? That's as real as it get. Uh, one, of, one, of my, one of my homies, uh, after he saw the post, he said, yo, he met her once and she, he asked her what advice he can, she could give him. 
Um, and she was saying, I think she was married for a very long time to her husband, like really long time. She said, don't tell people about your marriage and you're gonna go through some health, some serious health things as you get older, weather the storm. <laughs> so I was like, yo, that's a real, uh, that's a real auntie talk uh, and, and advice, you know. It's a G. Yeah, it is a G. Um, you know, she, <laughs> listen, man, um, for me, it's, it's, it's just, you know, we have such a rich history, right? You know, people like Gwendolyn Brooks, you know, before her, people, in, there, there was writings about what we were dealing with in the 1800s, 1700s, great writers, great writers describing this journey for us. And she just was, you know, brilliant, who really tapped on so much about our lives. And it, it's really frustrating for me um, looking at what we celebrate as entertainment in the modern day world. And I'm not even just talking about of recent, you know, I'm talking about, you know, I look at my, the majority, I look at the majority of my life, what, you know, pop culture has presented before us. Um, you know, there's been so many great artists in our country, black artists. Well, yeah. Like yeah. And so who, many. Who, who earned that title of artist. They earned like the title, say. they, they yeah. earned it, they worked, they died. You know, you didn't even know some of these people. Like I was going to Hampton University, I didn't know Weldon Irvine grew up on the campus. Um, like, you know, it's so much. And 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 now we look in our society, and we see what we're moved by as adults and as children and as young people. And it's it's not even a, a it's a small percentage of what we have done and what we've been a part of from an artistic standpoint. And That's exactly, because good art should represent a moment in time and the people of that time. You So much of what's expressed, unfortunately today, at least me personally, I'm a man of humble means. I cannot relate to a lot of this. I, I, can't, I can't relate to this. Gwendolyn Brooks, she had work, her work was, her work was, some of her work was banned. Yeah. Her work was banned because it was connecting too much to the Yo, people. Going she, she well, that, that was the beauty. That was the beauty of Gwendolyn Brooks's work, though, is that she. Took, and so one, my favorite songwriter of all time is um, is Bill Withers, and Bill mm -hmm. Withers had this had a, had a had a he was specifically gifted at being normal, right? <laughs> at being regular, right? Um, he was extraordinary at being simple. And Gwendolyn Brooks, to me, she reminds me of that in that mm -hmm. she took her humble her humble beginnings, being you know being raised um, on a, in a second floor apartment, you know, kind of like two bedroom apartment, and just kind of like she wrote about it in a very simple, straightforward way that needed to be celebrated and then when she was celebrated when she was a when she was a professor at the university of chicago when she was you know a journalist for the defender when she was doing all of these things right that were highly celebrated right she still made it a point to identify with the class struggle the middle class people in the middle and she told their stories she told our stories i should say in a very extraordinary way. And when she did that, she created, because when Langston Hughes died in 1967, right, 
there was there was kind of a there, there, you know McCarthyism was on the rise, and people were like people didn't want to stand up to McCarthyism. People didn't want to stand up with with left and and stand up and say, hey, I'm on the left side of the political spectrum, right? Mm-hmm. But Gwendolyn Gwendolyn Brooks did it. She was like, I mean, she she kind of like centrist it a little bit with the black nationalist politics, but she did it. And she did it in a way that was that was like, listen, I, it's normal for normal people to be on the other side of the political spectrum yes. because it makes sense. Yes. And yeah, she she said, you know, like, listen, she had a she came from an educational background. I think her mother was a teacher. But she said, you know, when people were talking about, you know, college for her, I think she she got her associates. She may have gone to college for two years or whatever. But she said, yeah, yeah, she got her associates. She said, I'm not a scholar. Mm-hmm. She said, I'm a writer, and I will uh-huh. always write. Yeah. And she said, I'm, a, I'm just a writer who loves to write and will always write. And she yes. patterned her lifestyle to do what she loves. And she was honest about her craft. Um, and, you know, that's something to be said about that, uh, as far as artistry, because in many regards, black people have been turned back into artistry as a way to get out the ghetto or make money or to express themselves. But in many regards, the artistry in the state of black artistry right now is, is really at a dangerous spot because, um, where you know art should reflect life in a meaningful way in my opinion um i'm not so sure we're at that space in time when the most successful artists you don't talk about them because of their meaningful content you talk about them because of their popularity yes even the fans even their so-called yeah. fans the fans yeah they, they start talking about how much how much money this person mm-hmm. record so there's a funny line in an interview actually from Sean Price where he was talking about like a fan like rolled up to him and was saying something about like the A&R and sound scan and all this mess. And he's like, yo, man, he basically told him like, I'm doing my part. Like, like I write around, that's what I do. I do my part. You listen to this music, you do your part. You're not an A&R, you don't work at the label. Like you don't need to concern yourself with that. No, and I love that because it's like, yo, people are not, the information, like you said, as it relates to the arts, that's reaching the people. These are the concerns. These are business concerns. But increasingly, people are, you know, they're this preoccupied is, this, with being this, some sort of the the, 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 the the commodification of it has has reached this such a degree that the this the the really the people who you want to hear from, they don't want any. They don't want anything to do with this anymore. The most deaths, the Andre 3000, the Michelle and Angelos, you know, the the Chades, you know, the you know these brilliant artistic minds are like, you know, I'm, y'all can have that. I'm, I'm right. I don't want no, I don't want any parts of this. Right. And I think a lot of that has to do with there isn't a paradigm to live normal and be committed to your art. So right. these young people are, you know, they, these all those people I just named, they're still pretty young. Yeah. And, and because, unfortunately, yeah, they got a lot of life left, but because the communities are so spread out, unfortunately, a lot of them probably feel isolated. You look at, like, Gwendolyn Brooks, that money she got for that Pulitzer Prize, Uncle Keith's point, she kept her life very simple. She didn't leave here with a bunch of bread. 
she was give, she was taking that money and, and was building up other young artists that were committed to the you craft. Mean she, you mean she wasn't out here changing her name legally and uh, calling her, shortening her name and uh, becoming a spectacle? Every day you have to hear about something she did or didn't do. Meanwhile, a flock of people from not your community, the white community, consider you a genius. Kanye, she wasn't yep. that. She she nope. was something else. You know, she was so, something else. She was she was she was she she dared to be something else. No, and she, and she and she lived the way she a, a, a funny Alana hers. I don't remember it exactly, but it was. I'm gonna give the gist of it. The gist of it was I'm a writer perhaps because I'm not much of a talker. She was getting out here, getting to her craft. Yo, and I, she, I salute, she, salute her, man. Man, salute her. One, one last piece I'll speak to before we transition. I'm not going to read it. Obviously, it's very depressing. But like, again, to your point that you was talking about, when you talk about art and what it can do for the, for the reality, the moment that people are living in, living with. She has a, a poem that's easily the most moving poem that I've ever read. And it was about the experience of black women who deal with abortion. Mm -hmm. And it was a very difficult poem for me to get through. You know, I got a, a whole family full of women. Obviously I got a wife, I got a daughter who what may one day become a mother and my sisters all that. And it was a very painful piece to try to read as a man, but I could imagine as a woman, the therapeutic aspect of being able to connect and share that kind of pain it had to be groundbreaking to be exposed to that kind of artistry. And at its best, that's what art does. At its best, it can help you heal, help you understand, and give you some context to make sense of this reality. Yeah, that's true. Young reader Phil, you ready? Practice? Yes. <laughs> good. I got, I got, I got some good music for us, man. Just let, you know. Let I'll be the judge of that. Music. Just tell us. Just go. Let's go out, man. I'm gonna play some really good soulful music man as you know i think y'all gonna like this mix uncle keith is listen you know what i'm saying split the pie five ways all right let's do it let's do it keep shaking your head over there boy we'll be back play my music man get your money man
Yeah, this, this, this. Is, this is uh, one, one of your, you know, predecessors, oh, okay. Ken. Um, <laughs> I think actually you should read this one. Are you mind. sure? Yeah. All right. No, listen, I'm sure I'll read this one. No, okay. Uh, African-American communist and lawyer William L. Patterson was instrumental in laying the groundwork and strategy to fight Jim Crow and the hypocrisy of the American rule of law. Patterson gave up a well-to-do life in his thriving, successful New York legal practice to challenge America in his, enti his entire life. At times, working with the great Paul Robeson, who became a lifelong comrade in the struggle for freedom. Patterson took on many civil rights injustices and was a legal architect and strategist in fighting cases such as the Scottsboro case in 1931, where African-American boys were falsely accused of raping a white woman. Patterson often traveled overseas to advance African-American equality by fostering and leveraging international support. He was responsible for the We Charge Genocide petition to the United Nations. Patterson also challenged the American prison system before mass incarceration and the prison industrial complex became popular and defended members of the Black Panther Party. Patterson possessed the foresight and critical analysis to effectively carry the freedom struggle of Black people into the global arena. He transformed into a revolutionary fighting colonialism, racism, Jim Crow, apartheid, and red baiting, which was uh, the McCarthyism, his entire life. In Gerald Horn's book, Black Revolutionary, William Patterson and the Globalization of the African-American Freedom Struggle, uh, it was a passage which followed the murder, the famous murder case of Italian anarchists, Sacco and Vanzetti, who had been previously been falsely accused of murder. Patterson is quoted as saying, it was at this moment that a weighty realization dawned. I came to the conclusion then that through the channels of the law and of more legal action alone, the Negro would never win equality. For if a white worker like Tom Mooney and white foreigners like Sazo, Sacco, and Vanzetti could be so victimized, what chances was there for Negroes at the very bottom? William Patterson laid the groundwork for future Black freedom fighters 
not sold on the idea that America's colonial version of democracy and racialized capitalism was the citadel of civilization and justice. Um, I read about William Patterson years ago and I was just like, hey, I would, you know, can you, you imagine living, you know, in this modern day era and reading about a black man who was a lawyer in the 1920s who was getting on boats to travel to Russia and, and other places in Europe and tell the business of America, not get killed, come back to America, start um, organizing with people like Paul Robeson on behalf of black people and equality, but also it's something that black people don't get a lot of credit for in this Western culture. Our movements informed and helped all these labor movements in which white people benefited from. All of these in Eastern Europe and in America. And it was because of people like William Patterson, but he didn't stop there. Scottsboro boys, Jim Crow laws. He gave up, he committed career suicide to, um, change this system. And he didn't lose his mind, fortunately, by luck. Beautiful brothers like Paul Robeson, he lost his mind. Um, this man lived well into late age, um, advised, uh, you know, Angela the, the Davis, Panther Party. The Panther Party, mm -hmm. yo, got, they took his license. They said he couldn't practice law. They jailed him, imprisoned him, and he just kept going. And he was able to do that through intellect. Malcolm always, you know, people always bring up the fact that Malcolm went to the United Nations. Well, there was a blueprint for going to the United Nations. Absolutely. This man and others, they were a part of that blueprint. Do you yes. know how strong you have to be as a black person in the, in the McCarthy and the red baiting era, era to not get your head cut off? <laughs> so him, him and ropes and up at the UN, you see these big old black brothers handing hand and we charge genocide. Yo, we <laughs> charge genocide. <laughs> to these officials. Yo, to these, yo, to show the yo. hypocrisy in America. So when we, you know, when we pretend to not know, when we pretend, when we're quiet in the face of oppression, you know, there was, there were people who laid the groundwork for this. And William Patterson was that to me. Um, he's someone you, you know, and it's, it's a, it's a long, rich history. Um, uh, Con Conrad, uh, I forget Conrad's last name. Um, there's a long, rich black history of black lawyers who understood this thing. They weren't supported. They weren't embraced by their even own community in many. That's many right. Cases. That's right. Um, but they understood this thing. They put their brains together. They were, you know, they were they were talking to the Fred Hamptons, the Malcolms, the Angela yes. Davises, all of these did the Stokelys. And they could have easily, and, and I see it in, you know, me and, me and Uncle Keith, Steve is, is a lawyer. Um, in my profession, now I've been practicing since, I've been studying law since 1994. I've been practicing since 1997. When I look around, um, I have the Tony Ricos, not many. Tony, the rich history of, of black lawyers, the Bruce Wrights, we'll never know about. Um, 
what's happened in my lifetime is that black lawyers, that legal degree, that license has often become an entryway to become white adjacent. You mm -hmm. look at many of the, of the uh, black lawyers who reach the highest echelons of American power, starting from Obama, Kamala Harris, um, this new uh, candidate uh, who's not too much older than me, who's, who, who they're prepping to be the next Supreme Court justice. Many of these people are, they have no connection to our community. They have no connection to the struggle. They have no connection to late black labor or any labor or the common man for that matter. They have aspired to whiteness. Um, they are white adjacent. And that, listen, I don't care who you sleep with, but many of them, Clarence Thomas, a bunch of them, they've married into uh, uh, whiteness, literally, and, and inspired white ideals. Um, you look at the firms, when you go to the top firms in this country, there's not many people who look like Tony Rico or Uncle Keith. They don't even exist because they don't put them in that position. And this is too more, more importantly, they don't, there's not anybody that thinks like a Ken yeah. Montgomery who can who has a, a value system and ideology that's rooted in fairness and justice as opposed to self-preservation and yes. capitalism. Yeah. And this is the, so to get into the higher echelons of power as a black attorney, you have to aspire to whiteness. You have to, you have to aspire to white ideals even you know, stronger than the white person in many regards. Mm -hmm. So to see it was individuals like William Patterson who somehow survived and excelled and left a blueprint and roadmap along the way. To me, that's just incredible. Like when I first read, I was like, wait a minute, he was getting on a boat to go to Russia in 1920? Yeah, and was out here speaking Russian. Russian. And you, and, yes. and you know what? Him and the, uh, another attorney, Harlem Cat. Yeah, um, communist leader Ben Davis. Yes, that was that was one of his comrades. But again, the alignment throughout that time: Shirley Graham Du Bois, mm -hmm. Claudia Jones. Yep. you know, uh, so so many, of, and of course Paul Robeson. So many of these these various actors, the interconnectedness. I came across Patterson through you know I, obviously studying international communism, socialism, mm -hmm. or what have you. And first, <laughs> this big old brother was an operative. <laughs> Go, going to Germany. Germany. I don't know how clandestine he was. You know, you certainly stick it out like a sore stick thumb. A sore thumb okay? <laughs> but, but nevertheless, the level of commitment, that willingness to, to, to put it all on the line while you're here, while you got it, and then coming back, organizing, writing, com being committed to the party, and then being committed to making sure that that generation that's coming behind you is able to continue to do this work. So that means that he fully understood it doesn't matter that I'm an attorney. It doesn't nope. matter that that man is a big entertainer. What matters is what spirit is moving through us. All we're doing is standing on the shoulders of giants. That's all we're doing. We're yep. only here for a moment in time. But while we're here, we're going to make sure that we let it move fully through us. We're going to use our faculties towards that end. And then we're going to pass it on. And then we're going to yep. be up out of here. Yep. And, I, and I'm, I'm forever inspired. I'm, I'm absolutely forever inspired. I'm very inspired by him, man. Um, he, he just, you know... <laughs> He, he's someone who many young lawyers, they didn't teach us about him in law school. There's no, when you go to law school, there's all these pictures up on the walls, usually white guys. 
usually one black guy, mostly white guy. William Patterson wasn't up on the wall. Um, he He's someone who to me just literally, like you said, he, Mally, I think you mentioned he committed career suicide um, to really um, push forward black intellect, but not just black intellect, black activism. He gave a framework for black activism on a local and an international level. And, um, you know, I don't think we have, you know, when you look at even the rich lawyer, you know, you, this, this is C, C. Uh, Vernon Mason, Alton Maddox, um, you don't hear about these brothers anymore. You know, you, you see these brothers who get in these personal injury cases or, with, or wrongful death cases where people are build, killed by the state, but you don't hear what they're doing when, that's, when someone's not getting killed by the state. You know, right. everything right. about their model is promoting for that commercial. Right, right. It's performative. It's performative. So, so it's, um, you know, shout, shout out to William Patterson. And listen, all these young attorneys who are coming up, I just want to tell you, your career happens really fast. Um, one day you're studying to get into law school. Then one day you're studying to take a bar. And then you're five years in, 10 years in, 15 years in, 20 years in. 30 years in, um, that journey, if that journey is all you can count is the dollars that you made or the people of power that you've met, you really haven't gotten the full appreciation of what that legal um, education means. You're, you're, as a black person in the rule of law, studying the rule of law, participating in the rule of law, you have a different relationship than your peers who are not black. And what I mean by that is when you really study it, you have to get to that section of constitutional law when you were property. Um, so to understand how someone who was once property is walking in and out of these courtrooms and challenging this system, you just by being a lawyer is a revolutionary act. If you do something with it. Now, what you do with that, yeah, now what you do with it, that's something else. So I, I salute William Patterson. I study him as, as well as others, you know, so. Yo, one, 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 one quick point on, on Patterson, because to, to an earlier point that you made, Kenny, it made me think about the, the power of that international aspect. Oh, yes, you talked about global struggles and the role that we play. When we look at the time of the work that he was doing, the Communist International, and we consider the Bolshevik revolution at that time. Mm -hmm. So much of the modeling, so much of the logic and the theory was absolutely being impacted by this brother in particular and so many of his comrades. So that a lot mm -hmm. of that understanding about uh, helping to drive down wages uh, with, with this exploited segment of mm -hmm. the working class. When, we were, when they were talking about Jim Crow dynamics, they were putting it in that context, making it that much more challenging for America to go onto the world stage and condemn any nation, yes. really almost for anything, but in yep. particular, as it related to labor and oppressing marginalized and, groups. And, 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 and you know, they, they had a lot of to consider because they had to deal with uh, big old red-faced Uncle Sam, mm -hmm. but they also had to deal with the, 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 um, the communist left white absolutely part, that was not committed to them not at all <laughs> they weren't committed to them they just they them showed pawns them. yeah they were pawns for them and they had to navigate that as well 
as well as the international side of it. So, you know, you know, I, I, and, and listen, when we listen, when we, when, when we speak about the, the role of any sort of anti-capitalist thought, the goal is not to celebrate any quote unquote red state or anything like that. that that's not the point. The point is to champion the individuals that are willing to examine other ideologies and to fuse their own understanding into it, okay? Yeah. And to fuse their own understanding into it and then to put it into practice. And all around the world, people were able to see and they were inspired by what they were able to observe from these black people here in the States. And of course, not to bring Hampton in again, but as he was helping to elevate black and brown people and all oppressed people in the hells of America. So these people were absolutely incredible in internationalizing our struggle and then advancing the human condition. So salute, yep. salute these, these elders. Yep. Listen, uh, it's been it's a pleasure talking to you guys, seeing my bros, man. Hopefully, you know, we get to see each other in person one of these days, man. Hmm. Yo, listen, when we come, we, we we coming back, we got some more, some more building to do on our elders. We coming back with, with Hosea Easton. Arthur yes. Ash, Gloria Richardson, you know. Wow, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to those, actually. Um, I always was very humbled by Arthur, Arthur Ash. Hosiah Easton, when I read about him and David Walker, I was just like, wow. Like this. Yeah, yeah, no, we're going to get it. Yeah, we're going to get it again. You don't always and, agree with yeah. them, but the, the power of that Yeah, I'm not a religious and, guy, but I, you know, his, <laughs> his civil rights, uh, like his ability... You know, those guys are dying young. They were dying in their thirties, man. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. And then, and, and Gloria Richardson, I, I didn't, oh, I never met her. I heard about her my whole life, read about her, and I just so happened to go to college and graduate with her granddaughter. She's a oh, beautiful, wow. beautiful woman. Big respect. My, my, my people's Tia, is uh, that's her grandma. Shout out to Tia. Yeah, Yo, shout to Tia. Well, maybe, yeah. maybe Tia might make a special appearance. I, yeah, I, I was saying we got we to gotta get her on. And get, definitely get reach her, out to tell us a Tell us a cool story about a grandparent. Yo, yo yeah, a, quick, like a, quick, a quick story about grandparents and family and perceived family. So, you know, y'all know my grand my grandnephew was here with us, you know, this, this past yeah. summer. Young Pierce. Little Mally? Yeah, chill, chill. <laughs> Little Mal. Young Pierce. That's the inside Pierce. joke, please. Anyway, but, but young, young Pierce was here. And when he went back home to, to his mother, my niece, he was telling her about these family members. So Stephanie is like, who are, I don't like know, know these family members. So ever since Pierce was little, I have a wall with you know a bunch of elders on it. So ever since he was a baby, before he could talk, I'll be teaching him about these elders. And he could he had a, he has an incredible memory. So he could he would point to the different elders. I said, Where's Gloria Richardson? He'd go up, he point to it. Now he's oh, he's eight now. So now I give him some gems. But all this time, apparently, he's been thinking that these people are all our family. So he was telling my niece these stories about our family members. So he didn't realize until this year that these people were not our family, that they were simply on the wall to be honored, to be celebrated. And so I thought that that was something beautiful. And it was a, I never expected to have him think that. But I think that it's beautiful that these people are going to be that much more approachable to him. It will be normal for him to be comfortable to discuss them, to think about them, and, and, and to consider them. And you know what? We don't do enough. Um, we don't do enough laying the groundwork for 
that information to be retained and, and received by our young people. Um, you need time and space to do that. You can't do that when someone else is, is budgeting your space, someone else is paying for your time. Someone has these laws where you can't do certain things in your community. And that, that's one of the disappointing things when I look at what's going on in our communities, even in 2022, is that we do not draft our own curriculums. If you don't draft your own curriculum, you're not, you're not doing anything. So you ain't lying. Think about it. Like we, we mentioned, we mentioned the, the great Gwendolyn Brooks. How are you going to be out here banning poetry for little black and brown kids from this black woman? Who are, first off, who are you? Who are yeah. you to ban this? Ban. What does that even mean? Hmm. Anyway, hmm. You know what I'm saying? So absolutely. So we, we have to be able to control, control our narratives in that fashion to the extent that we can. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's difficult, undoubtedly. So you got to do everything you can. It's like any other fight. If you can't swing, kick and bite. If you can't kick and bite, spit. If you can't spit, think bad thoughts. Do something. Do, Do something. something. Yo, so that's that's it. Yo, Phil, what how many how many song selections I got, bro? It's um uh, it's unimportant. It's unimportant. Yeah. But I'm a, I'm gonna mind my business, man. I turned over a new leaf, so you're right. Namaste, man. I love that. Namaste, yeah. man. Like, love man. that, man. We, Finally. We're gonna go out. Uh, we're gonna man. go out. I'm gonna go out, man. I think we should go out on Maisha, but um, I have a few. I, I also wanna wanna play um, a couple of other joints, man. So it's all good, man. I'll save Wonderful. one. Wonderful. We got we got a bunch of other people to cover. We yeah. playing that. We play, playing whenever or never. It's cool, son. Yeah, or never. You're right. It's very very dismissive. That's cool, son. So, so that's so that, that's our first episode of the Combine Honors. Hopefully. You know, we'll continue with these joints and the young yeah, yeah, folks yeah. will do it when we long gone. We need to have a we need to have a combine slap boxing um <laughs> episode, like real talk. That'd be like, wonderful. Yeah, it will it will be all you gonna hear on the episode is <laughs> yeah. nah. <laughs> nah, you know what I'm saying? You hear two hits. So good. Yo felt man, one of my favorite boy boy. You know what I'm saying? Put all aside all our differences, man. Right. Chicago. I stayed in Chicago because no one wants to stay in Kankakee, Illinois. Um, I ran into Muffy on a humble. Ruff, Muffy gave me some spots to check out. Um, I, I went to Ida B. Wells' house and I went to uh, a couple of museums. So shout out our man Muffy from, from Chicago. Um, you know what also shout out? Um, Jeremiah Zagar, the director, and Jeremy uh, Yaquez, the producer. Uh, of the new series on the drug fix. Uh, history in this country, The Fix, uh, narrated by Samuel Jackson. Um, they were gracious enough to uh, put put one of the combine people in it. Um, so big up to them, you know. 
Hey, yo, what's what's Muffy's joint? His his program is is run from prostate cancer. Run from prostate cancer. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Look, yeah. check him out on Instagram. We got a great great program continuing the good work of a lot of the elders we talked about here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Big up, Muffy. Yeah, big up Muffy, man. Um, felt you got you got anybody you want to say what's up to, bro? Um, nah, man. everybody <laughs> still. Just yeah. being honest, it's, it's the year to like get it, you know. And and I think you know, I think um, I I really do think Black History Month is important. I, I, you know, it's everyone's trying to reframe it and things, but I don't mm-hmm. think we ever got a good footing on historically like really digging in. Mm-hmm. You know, most people are like complaining that it's the shortest month. You yeah. know, companies do the fake honoring and put up the logos, but don't do any work. And then now you got black people talking about we off that. It's black future. It's black future, which yeah. is fine. We should be always thinking forward too, but it's like yeah. most, of, most of them people, you know, they always, what's the saying? Like, if you don't know your past, you're doomed to repeat it. Like that's, most of the people mm-hmm. that saying that black future shit, honestly probably don't know shit about the past because even me i'm learning every day about people who never got their shit shaken. Mm-hmm. nah it's so much that listen it's so much and we also come from a you know our elders were different i mean the ancient african civilization just was different it was here like they were passing down knowledge differently than this eurocentric filter so there's so much that we don't study and and we should we shouldn't be deterred or discouraged by how much we don't know. We should be encouraged and inspired by how much we don't know. Um, and seek it out. Absolutely. And seek it out. Yo, yeah. to, to Kenny's point, that that concept, that linear concept of the past and the future in this very strict way, these are relatively modern concepts. Many of them are Eurocentric. Some of them, plenty of them, we had continents quite massive, all sorts of ideas. But certainly around the world, people throughout time have had very different and diverging concepts of time, of, of the past and the present. And in most instances, they were woven together. So whatever cats are talking about with some sort of black future or what have you, personally, I don't understand that. I, I don't really know what that means, but have at it. But for those who do want to understand where they are at this moment in time, well, as Dr. Clark tells us, you know what I'm saying? We got to know our, our time of day. You know, mm-hmm. we, we got, we must study history. We must do that. Yeah. It's going to let us know where we are at any moment. I really, Otherwise, I really, how are you going anywhere? Yeah, I, I find it fascinating learning about, because um, it, it humbles you, man. Like you think, you man, first of all, you ain't here, you ain't even on this earth long enough to <laughs> be demanding what we should and should be doing in certain regards. I'll be very honest with you. Uh, we're not here that long. Um, and when you really appreciate that you're only here but a little beat um, you know, use that time wisely and just, it's, it's exhilarating to me to learn about uh, that people were fighting this thing and, and, and creating and innovating from day one. From day one. From day one. From day one. The rising, day one. rising yeah. and falling. And, it, and it, helps, it helps, at least for many of us, it helps you not only center yourself, but control that anxiety. Sometimes we feel like I'm not doing enough. I'm not working hard enough. Where are you going? As Uncle Thurm always says, wherever, wherever you go, there you are. Sometimes yep. we're we trying to hurry up and get someplace. Be where you at. Be where you at. Do yep. some work right now, right here in this moment. Don't get too caught up in the future. Don't get too caught up in the past, but leverage them. Leverage them all. You know what I'm I saying? Agree. So we'll Your dogs, not to, not, to, not to piss you off real quick, just to you know <laughs> upset you and rile you up. Um, that famous poem that, that Molly so eloquently quoted from Gwendolyn Brooks, 
mm-hmm. is also used on the intro to the song Praise God by Kanye West. Oh my God. You know what? You know, it doesn't nice. take much to rile me up. I just gotta wake up. <laughs> nice. That's so good. It's so good. I, you know, on that note, maybe we'll go out on a little Maisha Miles Davis. You know what I'm saying? You know, I, I'd like to go out on that. Could I could I get that one, Phil? Could, yes, you, know? you may. You know what, son? I got I got you, man. I'll buy you lunch tomorrow, Phil. You know? Yes, you may. It's all good. Yo, you thanks, thanks for that one, Phil. I don't I'm not I'm not a Kanye. I, you know what? And just to be fair, I never was a Kanye fan. I just never, his art never really impressed me like that. But, you know, I, a couple of songs, albums, I thought was cool. That album that he had Andre 3000 on um, to just sing the chorus, I thought that album was decent. The Pablo, whatever, that, that weird type uh, orange, you know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. Life of Pablo. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, other than that, I, I've never really been a Kanye fan. Man. Good for him, man. whatever. <laughs> I'm out, man. Miles Davis, man. All right. I, I got no comment. All right. On that note, we we signing off. This is the Brooklyn Combine. Yeah, Uncle Keith and yo, shout out to Uncle Keith and and, Keith. and, and, I, and, and Rodney. And, Rodney hopped on for a sec. He, he yeah, yeah, and 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 young Kennedy who uh, uh, was driving, and Uncle Keith looked like he he might have soiled his pants. Oh, word. He may yeah. have soiled his slacks. Yo, shout Young Kid Africa. <laughs> Young the, Kid Africa. So the pop slacks. Yo, Push your boundaries on those roads out there. Somebody call Uncle Keith. Make sure he's all right, man. <laughs> all right. Peace.